Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show, sponsored by Sunbury Press, publisher of books in a variety of categories under 11 different imprints, sold worldwide wherever books are sold. Today we have author Louis Greenstein. Louis has written for Nickelodeon's Emmy-winning show Rugrats, as well as for stage and screen. Lewis lives in New Jersey and is a freelance magazine writer whose articles about popular culture, history, public health, medicine, nursing, business, and technology have appeared in publications including Philadelphia Magazine, Wharton Magazine, the University of Miami Medicine Magazine, and Penn Nursing. For Sunbury Press, Lewis is the author of The Song of Life under our Ars Metaphysica imprint. Lewis, welcome to the Sun Prairie Press Book Show. Thank you so much for having me, Lawrence. I really appreciate it. So uh, this book, The Song of Life, I'm hearing it's a, it's a very interesting uh, story. You know, it's under our Ars Metaphysica imprint, which means it has a metaphysical uh, or spiritual angle to it. Maybe you could give us sort of the elevator speech about your book. Well, sure. You know, they say, write what you know. So I'm a, um, I'm a 64-year-old um, Jewish uh, writer with, uh, who practices no particular religion. Uh, so I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll write a novel about a 24-year-old woman who is pursuing God. Because, um, I don't know, it just seemed to occur to me. But <laughs> I've, been, I've been practicing meditation for a really long time, and the operative word is practice. Um, you know, for me, it is, um, well, in the mornings I, I, I practice meditation and then I, then I practice jogging. So I exercise my mind and I exercise my, my body and the, over the years, my meditation practice has been so, so useful to me. It, it's helped me to become kind of a better listener, um, less, you know, better able to, uh, maintain an even keel emotionally it's, it's stuff I had wished I had um, learned, you know, when my children were little and then I could have been more patient as a, as a parent, but you know, life is a process of growing and learning. And so over the years, I just became, you know, a, a real, a real devotee of, of taking that 30 minutes or so every morning and just sitting. Um, I learned a tradition from, from um, Shambhala Buddhism, but like I said, I'm not a religious person and I don't, Think people describe me, oh, you're spiritual. I, I don't even know what that means. Um, what I try to do is be ethical and good. I try to be patient. I try to be conscious and, and, and aware uh, and kind. And I think that's a, just a good way to go through life. My meditation practice has helped me with that. Um, and I really wanted to, to write a novel that, that dealt with that. Um, I... I um, so a lot of the things I've written in the past and, and much of the work that I do now as, you know, to make a living as a journalist is research based. Um, yeah. When I wrote a one man show about Albert Einstein, I, I, 
I learned physics. I, I went back to school and I studied algebra so that I could understand the, the nomenclature, the language of theoretical physics. When I wrote about Laura Nero, I studied music theory. I took piano lessons. I started at age 49. I'm, I'm, I'm still, still playing piano every day. I've done a lot of work that required an extensive amount of, of, of primary source research. And for this novel, I decided to challenge myself and write a total work of fiction. So that's, that's, uh, that was a long elevator ride, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, and I get, I get the process, uh, and, and, uh, how you kind of came to it, but the story itself, you know, there's a reason why we're calling it literary fiction, but also it seems to have a, maybe not a spiritual message, but maybe some truths about life in it. Maybe that's what we're getting at. Yeah. Um, I really tried to, you know, Margaret, the main character, learns some really valuable lessons about, about how to go through life, about letting go of anger and about living more in the present moment and less in the future, less in the past, you know, anxiety and depression. Um, and so I really wanted to show her, her journey. And, you know, I, I think we've, we've all been on a similar journey <laughs> You know, we're trying to be better people. Margaret really just wants to be a better person. And um, so that's kind of what that was, uh, what that was drawn from. Um, in my old neighborhood in West Philadelphia, I saw a young woman one day just walking, walking around carrying a, a Bhagavad Gita. And I thought, oh, that's <laughs> what an image. That's so interesting. And that was really um, kind of the genesis of, of, of the novel was, you know, um, and so the first line of the novel, I'm not giving anything away, is poor Margaret gets hit on the head with a Bhagavad Gita. She's sitting in a library and this book just lands on her head. <laughs> and I thought, well, what a, what, what a funny way to start a novel. And it's the first time ever that I've written anything that the first line that I wrote for the first draft remained the first line uh, throughout the entire process of writing and rewriting the novel. Uh, the first I line think- never changed. I believe you might have the first book that begins with such a line about the Bhagavad Gita hitting somebody in the head. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about Margaret, if Margaret was somebody in your life or somebody that you've met. And I, I get it that you saw a young woman with the book, but, well, you know, you had to write a whole story, a whole character, uh, you know, define a whole character. Is there somebody in your life or is it a composite Margaret? I would say Margaret is, is a composite. She was, inspired by a, a young woman that I, that I, that I saw and, and briefly met and talked with very, very, very briefly. But, but um, Margaret isn't based on anyone. For me, as a man, you know, a huge challenge was how to write a, a woman character. And so what I did was, well, I'm in a writer's group, and my writer's group read numerous drafts and commented, and there's a few women in the writer's group. Additionally, I sent the manuscript to seven, I guess, seven different female friends and, and, and ask them one question, you know, please read this and tell me what makes you wince as when you read the female characters, what makes you wince? And I kept going back to them and, and asking questions. It was hard to write a, a main character who's, who's a woman. And so um, that was a process of, of rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. And, um, 
and, and it was a real process of discovery for me as a male. Um, you know, uh, it, you know, men tend to project. And so um, it was important for me to make Margaret a whole real character and not just a projection of how I see women. So that was a really good learning experience for me. So uh, back to the Bhagavad Gita, for those that are listening that don't know much about it, is there some background, just a little bit about that you could share? Yeah, so the Bhagavad Gita is a very small section of the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata is the longest poem ever written. There's something like two million words, and it comes from ancient India, and it concerns the story of Arjuna, uh, a great warrior. Um, he is kind of the hero of the Mahabharata, and there's one section of it with Arjuna and Krishna. And Arjuna and Krishna are like best friends, cousins. Um, they've been together since they were kids. Um, Krishna is actually God. But in this one section of the Mahabharata called the Bhagavad Gita, Gita uh, uh, Krishna is um, actually uh, Arjuna's chariot driver. And he's driving Arjuna to this battle. And it's this huge, awesome, awful battle. And as Arjuna arrives there, he, he looks at the other side and the enemies and he sees friends and cousins and loved ones and teachers. And he, he's supposed to go and kill these people. And Arjuna is this great, great warrior, archer, leader, thinker, philosopher. Um, and he says to Krishna, whoa, I, I can't do this. I, I can't kill the people I love. And Krishna says, well, you have to because you're a warrior and you're in the middle of a battle. And besides, everyone who's dead is already dead and they've always been dead. And, and so the whole Bhagavad Gita is a conversation about life and death and the, and the meaning of life between Arjuna and Krishna. Um, so as a conceit, what I did was I didn't work from the Bhagavad Gita per se. I, I imagined the day before their legendary chariot ride. And Arjuna has his first day off in 10 years since, since he, he was exiled years ago. And it's his first day off. And so part of the novel follows him through his, his day off. Krishna is at the, in the shop overseeing some chariot repairs. And okay. Arjuna has a day to himself. And that was, was just totally made up. I didn't get it from anywhere. You know, if you're, if, you're writing a novel, if you're writing a play about Albert Einstein, you can read several books, many books about Albert Einstein. You can interview some theoretical physicists. You can go back to school and take a class. You know, you, you can do enough primary source research to really, you know, become knowledgeable in the subject. But what was I going to do here? You know, learn Sanskrit and master the, this two million word poem, Mahabharata? I could research it for the rest of my life. So the conceit was that writing this novel, I really didn't have to know anything more about the Bhagavad Gita than Margaret does. And in as much as it's a spiritual work, or people call it, you know, spiritual, um, and there are scenes from ancient India, really, I think everything we're reading, everything is, is Margaret, and we're in her head the whole time. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you that uh, with Margaret. What parallels in Margaret's life or Margaret's story align with the Bhagavad Gita, if any? 
Well, to some extent, people are going to have to read the novel to find out because there's a twist. Um, and I always wanted to write something with a twist, and I was really happy that I finally figured it out. But, um, but her life does parallel certain aspects of the Bhagavad Gita, and it parallels certain aspects of the fictional life that I created for Arjuna. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but there are two, two stories going on in the novel, and okay. they, they come together kind of at the end. Is there a passage or two you could read for us to give us a sense of your writing? Yeah, sure. Um, right. What I'll do is just read the first oh, – if I can find it. Here we go. I'm going to read just the first uh, page or page and a half. Um, so it starts, like I said, um, with, with the only, only opening sentence I've ever written that stayed the same opening sentence uh, from, from the time I wrote the first draft. And <laughs> what, what I like about this is the first sentence of the novel tells you the, the entire novel. So it starts like this, chapter one. It could take a Bhagavad Gita landing on your head to wake you up. On an overcast Thursday in April, Margaret Holly sat on the floor at the Woodward Public Library, not in religion, but travel. Her back pressed against spines of road atlases and tourist guides crammed into towering shelves. Margaret's legs splayed before her, her bare feet poking out like rabbit ears from her linen skirt, leather sandals resting mutely by her side. It was Margaret's day off. In a pallid fluorescence, she imagined things she'd rather do than work at a coffee shop. Number one would be a pilgrimage to dusty ancient temples in India. Second might be a road trip to Burning Man or a rainbow family gathering with Lisa Ferrillo. But she'd settle for a weekend drive to Chicago with her cousin Roy. After all, Margaret had yet to travel 60 miles beyond Woodward, Ohio. No tectonic shift, no building implosion, no backfiring delivery van on McKinley Street rattled the bookcase. No rumble from the storm blustering across Lake Erie. Nothing could explain the plummeting Bhagavad Gita. Nor did Margaret hear the book dislodge. As often as she was to revisit this moment, thousands of times in the years to come, she could not fathom how a 187-page hardcover book landed on her. So I guess that's just the, 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 the opening of the novel. <laughs> she, poor Margaret get, gets whomped on the head, bonked on the head with a Bhagavad Gita. And she's been, she's been waiting for something. She's been looking for something. She's been looking for meaning all her life. She's tried different religions. She's tried to practice meditation. She was given a copy of Siddhartha when she was 14, and she loved it. And she, she wanted to practice meditation like Siddhartha. Um, and she's been waiting for something to happen and she takes this as a sign, you know, wow, maybe, maybe this means something. And sure enough, it, it takes on this real significant, fabulous meaning in her life. Um, and Margaret throughout the novel really develops, um, into someone who is, a, a really great person. 
Yeah, that's a very strong opening. And uh, I can, I'm doubly sure that we made the right decision to sign you as an author to publish Thank that novel. So it's and very I'm visual, very sensual. Yeah. And, and, and I, I just see the opening scenes of a movie. So let, let's, fingers crossed, let's hope something like oh, that can happen. From your lips to the ears of the Almighty, Lauren. <laughs> but, that would uh, be great. Just a little bit about fiction versus nonfiction. I know a lot of your professional writing is, of course, more technical or nonfiction, certainly. Um, I know you've done some other creative things, but maybe talk about the how do you switch gears between fiction and nonfiction? I myself am mostly a nonfiction author, historian, biographer, and so on. And when I've tried to write fiction, it's been it's been a tough challenge. So t- tell me a little bit about how you switch gears. Well, um I guess I I might question whether switching gears is the way I see it. Um, What I'm constantly trying to do is tell a good story, is to prove a hypothesis. Um, The way I see it, it's writing fiction and writing and editing nonfiction, which which I also do. I edit edit a lot of nonfiction books. Um, they have more in common than, than not in common. Uh, I guess one difference is when you're, when you're dealing in nonfiction, uh, the, the world in which you're operating and the, you know, there, there are fewer moving parts. So uh, last week and the week before, I was working on an article for a magazine about a racial justice task force that was formed at a, at a medical school um, in, in response to the, 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 the killing of George Floyd and everything else that we're seeing. And, and it was a really strong and wonderful uh, piece to be able to, to work on. Um, so uh, in as much as it's, you know, it's nonfiction, it's reporting, it's journalism. I didn't choose the subject. I didn't choose the themes. I didn't, I didn't really choose the sources. Um, but how I sweat over constructing the narrative reminds me exactly of how I sweat over constructing a plot when I'm working on a novel. Um, You know, so a group of students wrote a letter to the dean and the dean read the letter. And at the same time, there were town halls going on where where, uh, students of color were showing up and talking about, you know, what it's like to be a medical student or a fellow or a resident. Uh, and be stopped by the police when you're walking across campus, you know, that kind of thing. And there were, there were all these moving parts, and there wasn't a story per se. My job was to talk with the sources and look at all the, the, the data, um, you know, look at all the evidence, and to construct the narrative so that it makes sense. So when the reader reads it, they go, oh, here's what happened. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. And they get a genuine picture uh, of, of, of what occurred. I don't think writing a novel is that much different. How can I figure out, you know, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And the reader comes away with a sense of having embraced a story, you know, with the beginning, a middle and an end. Um, so it's not, I guess if it's switching gears, it's, it's, um, it's, I'm downshifting. <laughs> I'm downshifting yeah. to go from, from fiction writing to nonfiction writing. 
And you made the point before the show when we were talking that even with fiction, you still have to do research. You still have to make it believable. You still have to know what you're writing about in order to to hook the reader, to make it uh, genuine. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, so there are a few different themes in The Song of Life that do, um, you know, the characters I made up, the situations I made up. But, you know, so uh, Margaret has a cousin named Roy who's a boxing manager. Um, I, I did write about boxing for, for a few years in the early 90s. I covered boxing for the News of Delaware County, and I even wrote a couple pieces for the Ring Magazine, the Bible of Boxing. Um, so, you know, I'm not an expert on boxing, but I know enough about it to be able to, to talk the talk. Um, issues of, of uh, well, one of the themes is big data um, and, and um, forecasting. And so, you know, that's something I've written about. I wrote about as a copywriter and I've edited books about. So, you know, it, it gives me a good, solid lay knowledge of these subjects to be able to, to write about them. But I purposely didn't do a lot of research for this, for this novel. Like I said, you know, I, what's I going to do, like, you know, unpack the Mahabharata? Uh, the first thing I had to do was to learn Sanskrit, right? You know, so I challenged myself to write a novel that was um, where I just made up the plot and I made up the characters. And like I said, I, 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 there are themes that um, from, from the real world that I'm familiar with so I could write about with some, you know, some sense of minor authority. Um, but unlike other work I've done, I, I didn't want to do a lot of research for this. I just wanted to make something up. So, Lewis, a uh, little bit about your background. We, we do have about six minutes to go, and I, I did want to get in about your, your history as a performer back when sure. your career started. If you could talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, as I, as I mentioned to you before, um, before, we, before we went on the air here, uh, I am a recovering mime. Um, when I was in high school, I learned how to juggle. And I remember, you know, it was like, well, oh, I could meet girls. Like, you know, I should have learned to play the guitar if I wanted to meet girls. Instead, I learned <laughs> how to juggle, and I became a juggler. And when I was in, uh, you know, in college, I would go out to Chestnut Street, which at the time was a, they tried to, to for 20 minutes in the 1970s, they, they got rid of the traffic on Chestnut Street in Center City, Philadelphia. So I would go and, and, and put on juggling shows, and then I would go to a, Penn's Landing with musicians, and I would I would juggle, uh, and and someone said to me, you ought to you ought to study mime, and I had seen Marcel Marceau, and I had seen Shields and Yarnell, and um, you know mime was cool for again for twenty minutes back in the early seventies, and I I began to study mime. I, I got trained as as a mime artist and joined the Boulder Mime Theater in Boulder, Colorado, and performed with them for two years. And, um, and that was really, um, you know, kind of my, 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 the beginnings of my creative life was as a first as a juggler, then as a mime, then I became an actor. Um, and at the same time, I, you know, I've been together with my wife for, uh, we met 40 years ago, like next month, we've been together a long time. Um, when I was young and, 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 you know, trying to, trying to make it as an actor, I got my equity card. I was doing a little bit of regional theater it occurred to me that the there were people I was I was working with other actors who were hungrier than I was 
who were better trained, who were more committed. I wanted to have kids and be home. Um, I didn't want to be working every weekend and, and holidays and be away so much as regional actors are. And then in 1985, I wrote a, a one-act play, and it got produced in this theater festival in Philadelphia. And sitting in the audience, like watching my play and hearing people laugh, it, it was just one of the best experiences of my life. Yeah. And that's when I thought, like, I really want to be serious. I, I got to be serious about this. I'd been an English major. I liked writing. I thought I was good at writing. But when I was young, I think like a lot of people, I just couldn't sit still for six hours a day. You know, that was that was hard. But as I got <laughs> a little older, it's like, oh, I can do this. I can I can sit for six hours. I can I can bang stuff out. I can write. I can edit. I can polish. I can fix it. And it's it, it became a very it's a very satisfying um, pursuit for me to write something, either theater that people are going to see on the stage and react to, and I can hear them laugh. And it's just a wonderful feeling. Um, or just knowing that people are reading my novel, uh, they care about it, they're absorbed in it. That delight that I get when I read a novel that, you know, you just, you're in the flow, you're pulled into it. That's such a great feeling. And I wanted to be able to do that and give, and give other people that delight with my writing. And so that, that, that's kind of how it all, all came about. Um, performance for me was kind of a way into um, a creative life. Well, if you think about it, it's, it's fascinating to think of you starting out as a mime actor, performing without words, and now you're an author, writer. Everything is words. So, <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's, a, it's quite a... <laughs> Making up for uh, lost time or something. <laughs> it's kind of like a book hitting me on the head, making me <laughs> try to picture that. I just wrote, wrote an essay, and I'll, I'll tell this briefly. I know we're wrapping up. I just wrote an essay uh, about how part of my mind training when I was living in Boulder, Colorado, was I was silent one day a week for a year. I was silent every Tuesday for one year. And on one of my silent Tuesdays, I went to the Boulder bookstore to get my copy of Howl, signed by Allen Ginsberg and I'm standing in line and I'm waiting for Allen Ginsberg to sign my copy. And it never even occurred to me. He would say something to me. It was my silent day. So I get up to the table where he's, where he's sitting <laughs> and I couldn't say anything. And I, I grabbed a pen and I wrote Lewis Greenstein in my, on my copy of Hal. And he thought I was hard of hearing. Right. And uh -huh. I was deaf, so he starts like talking really loud and I didn't think that that was fair. I didn't think that was nice to, 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 to fool him or to. So I finally spoke up and I said, it's my silent day. And he got this mm -hmm. big grin on his face. He goes, oh, oh, well, who are you with? What group? And then he goes, Shh, wait, no, it's silent, silent. The, the, the great thing about that was about two months later, I was in a copy shop and Ginsburg walked in and he recognized me and he remembered me. And he came over and we talked for a couple minutes. And subsequently, over the next few years, I would run into him once in a while. And we, we, I guess I was friends with Allen Ginsberg, but we would wave. We would share a smile. He always remembered me. And the big takeaway was, if it had been any other day of the week uh, that I had showed up to have my book signed by Allen Ginsberg, he never would have remembered me. It was because right. I was silent and I had nothing, you know, I didn't say anything that, that, that was memorable. And I wrote this essay about it, and it's called My Silent Howl. So, um, again, like you had mentioned, it was kind of that 
you know, the words and the onwards. We've been talking to Lewis Greenstein, the author of The Song of Life. Lewis, are you working on anything else? We've got about 30 seconds. Do you have a new novel in the works? Yeah, I'm, I'm planning a new novel. Um, you know, as I mentioned to you before the, 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 uh, before the, 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 the podcast started, my wife and I just moved to Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey. We live by the bay, and it's really quiet here. And I jog every morning, and I use that time just to start to think about developing characters for my new novel, uh, who they are, what makes them tick, um, you know, thinking about the characters and slowly as I'm doing that, trying to build a plot that is natural and, and um, will be gripping. So, yeah, I've got a, got a new novel, which I'll be, I'll be coming to you and plugging probably in, in a year. So. Very good. All right, Lewis, it was great having you on. Hope to have you back for that new novel as well. Thank you so much, Lawrence. I appreciate everything. Thank you for publishing my work. Uh, thanks for the support, and thanks for having me today. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Be sure to check out our books at www.sunburypress.com or search for our titles on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other booksellers worldwide. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are hundreds more available on the BookSpeak Network. You can find our channel on blogtalkradio.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.